Welcome to the New Work Revolution podcast on NewWorkRevolution.com. Take your business leadership to the next level and join the revolution. Here's your host, Brandon Allen. All right, so I want to welcome everyone to the New Work Revolution podcast here on NewWorkRevolution.com. This is Brandon Allen. And about once a month or so, I have authors on that talk about insightful, helpful information that every single listener here who cares about leadership and small business can take and really apply to their business. So I had the opportunity to read the book, Beyond Default, Setting Your Organization on a Trajectory to an Improved Future, and I've got the authors of that book uh, here with us today. Everyone who's listening to this podcast is a small business owner, and where they're going is important. And uh, there's some really great content that we're going to talk about and go through. So I've got David Trafford, who's one of the authors of the book, uh, with us, as well as Peter Bogus. He's going to be with us as well. These guys have done consulting, mentoring, and, and done a lot of things in the business space in, the, in terms of innovation, collaboration, technology, all these kinds of things. These guys have been doing this for a long time. They've got a wealth of knowledge, so I'm really excited to bring them to you. So, uh, David and Peter, thank you uh, again for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting us. All right, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just let's let's do something easy here. Let's just talk about uh, the book. Uh, you know, talk to me about the genesis of this book. You know, how did it how did it start? What what brought this on? How did how did we get to Beyond Default? Well, perhaps I'll kick off with that. It's David here. Now, Peter and I have been working together for over 25 years um, as consultants and advisors to a wide range of um, organizations across many sectors in in many countries. And and one of the questions that we kept asking ourselves is, why is it that some organizations are more successful than others? Why is it that they appear to be more successful at developing and executing strategy than others? Is it the quality of the leadership? Of course, that's important. Is it a result of the approaches that they take in terms of improving the performance of their organization? Or what is it? What is it? This is something that's more fundamental going on, and that's the conclusion we came to. There's actually something more fundamental that's going on that determines the ultimate um, destiny of an organization and that's what we researched and that's what we tried to sort of articulate and explain in the book all right I love that so let's talk about just you know right from the start you guys talk about you know how successful you know our organizations are changing their futures and how do they do that so by and large I mean how well do companies do this uh, and we'll start there. Peter, do you want to uh, kick off with that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll lead on this, Brandon. It's Peter here. So um, all of the evidence, Brandon, suggests that organizations, for the most part, organizations are not very good at developing and executing strategy, or in our language, developing strategies which shift their trajectories to a better improved future. So if you look at all the evidence which we, which we display in the book around mergers and acquisitions, for example, large-scale transformation programs, uh, or, or just major um, attempts to change strategy, 
the, the bottom line is most of these attempts fail. And what we try to understand in the book is, is what is causing this failure. And one of the conclusions we came to was that there are many both external and internal forces that are keeping an organization on its existing trajectory and preventing it from moving to a better improved trajectory for the future. And that's what we explore in the book. And, and Brandon, just to put that in historical context, this is new and not new. You know, if you go all the way back to Peter Drucker, who said in the 1960s, yeah. two-thirds of mergers and acquisitions destroy shareholder value rather than create it or increase it, right up to the present day, all of our up-to-date research confirms that actually the success rate isn't changing. So one of the things we try to explore in the book is why is that the case and what can leaders do to change their conditions for success? Yeah, and, and I love that. Just to put a little yeah. bit, and just to put a little bit of data around that, what we did is we looked at this from five perspectives. We looked at it from the churn of companies in the Fortune 500, S&P 500, and FTSE 100 companies. Because, you know, the assumption being that if you were successful, you would stay in those lists. And, for instance, since 2000, over 50%, that's five zero percent of the Fortune 500 companies have been acquired, merged, or declared bankruptcy. That's since the year 2000. Another dimension we looked at was the tenure of CEOs. And in 2014, one study showed that over a quarter of CEOs in the FTSE 100 changed. And Peter's already mentioned the success rate of the mergers and acquisitions. And we also looked at it from the success rate of major transformation programs. And we looked at a number of studies. And one was by the University of Oxford, where they looked at 5,400 IT projects. And the cost overrun of those projects was over $66 billion. That's more than the GDP of Luxembourg. So I think you can see, we look at it from a number of perspectives, because we wanted to be absolutely sure that the rest of the book was based upon solid foundation, that there is a need, there's an urgent need to get better at as Peter was explaining, changing your trajectory of your organization from one that's taking it to its default future to one that takes it to an improved future. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So um, we, when you guys talked about the failure, right, of, of, and I think this is important, I'd love to talk about the success, maybe just a couple of success building blocks, but also some things with failure, because I, I've seen this with companies that I work with as well. You know, you guys mentioned, just, you know, take one example, leadership bandwidth. You know, underestimating the amount of time and effort and energy that it's going to take to uh, maybe entertain a certain different trajectory level that gets them to a different uh, uh, future for their organization versus the default future, as you guys talk about, um, that they're currently on. So, um, Talk about just what are some things that business owners need to be aware of when they do look at, at changing their trajectory uh, in their organization? What do, what do they really need to plan for that, that, that are stumbling blocks for companies that, that fall short here? If I jump in, I think one of the mistakes that many leaders make 
is they focus too much on the future they want rather than the future they're going to get. Now, of course, it's important you need to envision what sort of future you want. But if you spend too much time focusing on that, you don't understand the forces that are keeping you on the trajectory that you're currently on. And those forces are either external or internal. So the external uh, exogenous navigating forces, as we call them, are those that define the context in which you operate. So regulatory controls, trade agreements, population dynamics, globalization, energy availability, technology, particularly the growth of the, the internet and, and things like that. They define the context in which you operate. And there's equally a set of internal navigation forces, endogenous forces, which is to do uh, with um, past decisions around investments. It's around the uh, quality of the leadership, it's around the technical capabilities that you've got, it's around the processes that you've put in place, it's around the governance that you've put in place. And these internal navigating forces are the ones that keep you on your current trajectory. And if you don't understand those, and you don't understand the, the, the force that they exert and keep you on your current trajectory, like, it's a bit like tram lines, they keep you on your current trajectory. If you don't understand those, then how can you make informed choices as to what to do to weaken some of those forces, eliminate some of those forces and strengthen others that will put you on a different uh, trajectory. So to answer your question, I think that leaders, and whether it be large organizations or small businesses or family enterprises or, or whatever, too much focus is given on the future rather than understanding, sorry, too much focus is on the future you want rather than the future that you're going to get. In terms of the stumbling block there of looking at the reality check that is important, right? Where are we at right now? What's the reality of our situation? What do you think and what have you seen with leaders that really keeps them from doing that? Is it ego or is it just, is it something else? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of factors, um, Brandon. As, as David says, you know, context is everything. We use the example of Blockbuster in the book over a period of time to, to describe and, and, and explain that. Stumbling blocks, I think, are to do with, um, as Don Tapscott says in, our, in the foreword to our book, we live in an increasingly VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous and the need for leadership around strategy is more important than, than ever. And you mentioned, Brandon, you know, leaders need to spend considerable amounts of time uh, worrying about and being dissatisfied with the status quo and shifting their organizations to, to a future better trajectory. As David says, you know, one of, the, one of the main things that constrains them from doing that are these endogenous and powerful uh, exogenous and endogenous forces that are keeping them on these on these tram lines as we describe using blockbuster as an example what can they do differently about that i think it's about taking time out to understand those external internal forces what they need to strengthen what they need to weaken what they need to add as new capabilities to enable them to shift to a to a better trajectory when when leaders get this right when they manage this process right and they lead this process right, what is typically present? What are they doing differently than the leaders who fall short? 
I would say exercising collective leadership. In the book, we make a very clear distinction between what we call collective leadership and individual leadership. Um, now, because we believe that without collective leadership, there will be no collective strategy. Uh, and without collective strategy, an organization has very little chance of changing its trajectory. So what do we mean by collective leadership and how does it differ from individual leadership? Well, I, I think the, the, the important difference here is that with collective leadership is when the organization's leaders have collective ownership of shared accountability, understanding what needs to be done, particularly like they're pulling in, in, in the same direction. With individual leadership, and we would argue there's too much individual leadership, it's very heroic leadership, it's, 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 it's leadership by the individual as opposed to the collective. Uh, and when you couple that with the way that organizations are organized in the sense they're very siloed, and what's more, incentives are very short term, what you get is very myopic, siloed initiatives that don't come together. You know, it's very rare that the collection, the sum of the individual strategies for an organization is the best strategy for the organization as a whole. So it, it results in a very fragmented approach. So I think to answer your question, I think those who get it right are organizations that exhibit more collective leadership as opposed to individual leadership. Yeah. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think from, uh, you know, a quote that I always tell in workshops and things like that is the African proverb that if you want to go somewhere fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And I think it's very easy for entrepreneurial types and leaders in that space to feel very uh, heroic in, in their efforts. And then as that organization starts to develop complexity, and the different silos that you talked about with different departments and things like that, it's very easy there for them to lose sight of that collective uh, learning, that collective leadership, and getting that buy-in as an organization. Uh, absolutely. Fully, fully agree with that. I like, I like the point that you make very much so. So let's, let's talk about the case study of Blockbuster. Uh, you know, you, you brought that up and you talked about it. Um, walk people through, you know, gosh, some of my listeners may not even uh, remember what Blockbuster even is. I don't know. But um, walk, walk us through kind of what, what you guys saw with Blockbuster from, you know, kind of where they went wrong and, and what derailed that company. Peter, why don't you cover this one? You know, in its time, Blockbuster was an extremely successful, fast-growing profitable business in what was then called the, you know, the video rental business, if anybody remembers VHS recorders and videos these days. And he was opening you know, stores at a, at a fantastic rate, customizing stores uh, to the local demographics, opening them, running them extremely successfully. And as David said earlier, you know, when the context in which you operate changes so fundamentally, um, you can very quickly lose the plot. And what happened with Blockbuster was the advent, the very rapid advent of fast streaming to homes of internet-based um, DVDs and films. It just overtook them. And they found that you know, all of the organizational capabilities that they had developed 
in doing what they've done tremendously successfully were no longer sufficient to make them successful in the future. And as a consequence, they failed and they turned from being an $8 billion business to seeking bankruptcy protection uh, almost, almost overnight. And so one of our points here is that the organizational capabilities that have made you successful in the past will not necessarily be sufficient to make you successful in the future. I, I yeah. think it's very important that we perhaps bring out, Brandon, what we, talk, what we mean when we talk about organizational capabilities. It's the capabilities that the organization develops over time. I mean, one way of describing them, they are the muscles that get developed. And as you know, the more you use the muscles, the, muscles, the more powerful those muscles get. So Blockbuster developed those muscles of being able to open franchises, define what videos were going to be shown in different demographic, uh, for different demographic audiences and so on and so forth. So they built up all those organizational capabilities and within the context within which they operated. And when the context operated, they did not have those organizational capabilities which were present in Apple with iTunes, with the streaming of videos and within Netflix and so on and so forth. And the tragedy for Blockbuster was they were just not able to develop the new organizational capabilities for the new context fast enough. They tried, but they were not successful. Was that a function of waiting too long? Um, I, I don't think it's, uh, well, I suppose, of course, yes, you could say it's a case of waiting too long. In a sense, you probably don't recognize the change of context quickly enough. And I think that's very important when you're developing strategy. I mean, as, as, as the writer William Ford Gibson once said, the future is already here. It's not just evenly distributed. So whilst broadband was being developed very rapidly and rolling out very rapidly during that period of time, I think what was the, just probably didn't recognize the impact that he would have. And they felt as though that if they kept tuning and pushing their existing business model, rather than recognizing the change of context, um, then they might have been able to change. But that's a very good, it's a very good question in the sense that if they had recognized that, would they have been able to change quickly enough? I think the jury's out on that. And I think a lot of, what well, a lot of organizations fail is they don't, yep. talk, they don't recognize this context shift. The context shift that's been created by the change of exogenous, exogenous navigating forces that we've talked about. And we must underestimate yep. The difficulty in an organization reprofiling its organizational capabilities. It's very easy to do. So it's very easy to say, but very difficult to do. And Peter and I have been in many, many organizations where we can see they're just hardwired. They just think in a particular way. They operate in a particular way without necessarily thinking um, what they're doing. And to get them to develop new organizational capabilities, we'll just put them on a different trajectory. That's very difficult for organizations to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I look at that, especially even in today's day and age. I mean, in, in, it, when Blockbuster really, you know, saw the writing on the wall, I mean, that was, that was a time of fast-moving pace. But in today's day and age, I mean, it's moving faster than ever. And I, and I wonder if you guys can speak to this about you just you know where we're at today and just 
you know, how important it is to really keep your eye open because I, I wonder how possible it, it is to even keep something that just advances so rapidly in terms of technological change, ideas that spread. I mean, it just happens so fast today. You know, how do, how do leaders really stay on top of that? It, it seems almost uh, impossible. Well, if I can use a contemporary example, Brandon, around what David has described around Blockbuster. I mean, if you take yeah. fintech, you know, non-traditional new fintech startups compared to the traditional financial services organizations, on the one hand, they are not encumbered by the baggage, the legacy of IT legacy systems and everything else and organizational capabilities that financial services companies have. And therefore, traditional financial services companies find it very difficult to respond fast enough to the opportunities presented by fintech, by blockchain, and everything else going around them. Secondly, you know, we mentioned earlier uh, operating in, in an increasingly VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I think you know, the onus, the pressure is on leaders of more traditional, more complex organizations to be much more sensitive and aware of what is going around them and changing their context than has probably ever been the case in the last three decades that David and I have been, have been working. And thirdly, you know, like Blockbuster, they will be overtaken by some non-traditional new startups, some new entrants who don't have that baggage, will move at the speed of sound and simply overtake a current business model. That's just the harsh reality. Yeah. And I think we live in a very exciting period, I think, particularly with developments in digital technology. And I'm an engineer in IT, and I wrote programs, software programs, a long, long time ago. And I think now we're beginning to actually do things that we dreamt about decades ago. And that will continue. So I think we're in a, a very a period of very fast change. But I come back to what I've already said in terms of William Paul Gibson. The future's already out there. It's just not evenly distributed, distributed. So what you've got to do, I think, is to spend time looking out there, get out of your organization. You know, we use this phrase, get out of the village and go and see what's going on around the world. Because if you do that, you will look through a different lens. You'll see the world in a different set of eyes. And what Peter and I have done over the years, we've we've taken executive groups out of their organization. We've taken them into organizations in different industries in different countries. And they see the world differently and they realize what the future could be as a result of that. And I think that's something that executives have got to do more and more, spend time looking outside rather than looking inside. I love that. I mean, look, this is one of those things where, uh, for you, the listener who's hearing this, this is such an important piece. If we don't get out of the four walls of our business, now, not all companies that are listening to this are maybe traditional brick and mortar, but if you don't pay attention to what's going on around you, and this is where diversity of your workforce, I know we complain a lot about millennials and things like that, but look, I want to have a diverse work- workforce. I want to have people that have other experiences that I don't have. I want to get out and see the world and what's going on out there. And if we don't make time for this, 
as a business owner because we feel like it's not valuable time, we're, we risk missing the disruption that's right there in front of us that could change the trajectory of our current business, uh, not for the positive. Uh, or keep it, I guess, in that trajectory that we don't want to be as we look out into the future. So pay attention to this. Having that time and space to do that is so critical. So I'm really glad you guys brought that up because I think that's a, that's a challenge that uh, a lot of business owners have when they get busy and they don't make the time to do those things. So Very talk welcome, to me Brian. about... Yeah, thank you. So, so talk to me about, you know, one thing I want to talk about, you guys brought this up in the book, and, it, it, you know, just a, a quick, uh, you know, you talked about change fatigue, and I think it was like, I, I, I might be remembering the percentage wrong, but I think it was like 65% of people in organizations had said, hey, I've experienced change fatigue. And I work with a lot of, of, of early growth um, companies, not startups, but companies that are in a pretty significant growth trajectory. And one thing that I know about visionary business owners is they never met a change they didn't like. And so how do you balance creating, you know, looking at your default future, creating that different uh, trajectory if you don't like what you see, and, and managing that change process? What have you guys seen that really works for people to really manage that appropriately. Uh, let me jump here. I, again, I think we make a very deep, clear distinction between operationalizing strategy and implementing strategy because change is just a way of executing strategy. The change has got to be there for some purpose, and we would argue the purpose is to put you on a different trajectory. The problem is, very often, that people don't have a clear line of sight between what they're expected to do differently and the outcome that it will give, i.e. the different trajectory that they're on. And what organizations try to do is to compensate for that by over-planning, by implementing through different change initiatives and programs and things like that. And they set up a program office and tell everybody what to do and what not to do and so on and so forth. Now, in some situations, that's absolutely the perfect and correct way to go about it. When we argue that the outcome that you're expecting is very deterministic. You know, it's a bit like building a bridge. If you're building a bridge, good idea to have a plan, right? Right. When you're... When, when, when you're trying to change your trajectory, it's much more fluid than that. And what we argue is you need to operationalize. Well, what's the difference between implementing and operationalizing? Well, operationalizing is well, when you pull yourself in onto the trajectory that you want. Yeah? And you engage people both intellectually, emotionally, physically, so they know what direction you want to go in. They know what the trajectory is. So they can use their own judgment and experience on a daily basis. You're engaging them on that journey. And we know that when we're overmanaged, it does become tiring and it becomes, it, 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 we get fatigued. But if we know what we're doing, we find that discretionary energy and we'll go that extra mile because we understand why we're doing what we're doing. And what we found in the research, in, particularly around why change projects fail, is people don't understand why the change projects are there anyway. 
They don't understand why, what the line of sight with the outcome you, you, you're trying to achieve. So we argue that particularly when you're executing strategy, it needs to be operationalized as opposed to implemented. An operationalizing strategy is where you help people to understand the direction that you need, that you, you, you need to go on, but more importantly, why you need to go on that directory as opposed to the directory that you're on, and then allow them to use their own experience and capabilities to pull the organization on that rather than the leadership team trying to push the organization on that directory. Wouldn't you agree with it? I would yeah. agree with that, David. There's a, there's, a, there's a key distinction here, Brandon, between you know, a very well-defined outcome like closing down a business unit in a country, withdrawing a product from a geographical area, you know, very clearly defined outcomes. And we've used the word trajectory very deliberately in the book to describe it as being a direction of travel rather than a destination. And we, we interviewed and we researched one of the examples we use in the book is a, a medium-sized UK uh, hospital where the leadership team, going back to David's point about collective leadership, you know, were aligned around a vision of patient-centric care, much easier to, to say than to do, and undertook the experiential learning journeys, came back, engaged the entire organization of, of, of hundreds of people, engaging their emotional, physical, mental, intellectual energies in traveling that direction and figuring out what that meant for them in a very different context in the UK healthcare system from the US and engaging everyone in that in that journey and working out what that meant for them in a very different context over a period of time. And it's one of the it's one of the few outstanding successes, especially in, in healthcare in the UK, that we can point to as being an example of collective leadership, but also an example of operationalizing a, a, a shift of trajectory where you're not entirely clear, you cannot be entirely clear what the destination is, but you do know what the direction of travel is. Yeah, I love that. Just making that a way of life for your team, communicating, bringing them on board. What a novel concept, right? Uh, getting your team to buy in and, and uh, actually work with you in those change initiatives. I love that. So um, final thoughts, you guys. Give me what, what, what didn't we talk about that we should have? What are some final thoughts that you feel like are really critical for people to understand as they, as they look at their own strategic trajectory and, and where they're going in their companies? Uh, final thoughts. I, I'll repeat something I've already said. I think all leaders need to understand the trajectory they're on and the future that that will bring before they can make any, make any informed choices in terms of what they need to do to change that trajectory. I think thinking is shifting from the old way of developing strategy, from developing a vision with big, hairy, audacious goals, to let's understand why we're on the trajectory we're on, what trajectory do we need to get onto. As Peter was saying, the direction of travel there is very, very important. And then what do we need to do to get the old organization moving in the direction we want to go? I'd agree with that, David, and I would add to that, you know, Brandon, good leaders have always been relentlessly dissatisfied with the status quo. That, that's a hallmark of a good leader. In a VUCA world, 
that becomes even more important almost on a daily basis. If you look at some of the challenges, um, I've just been updating our research on, on what's happened with GE in the last two weeks, for example. You know, you, you cannot take your eye off the ball and even, you know, well-managed um, companies and organizations cannot afford to take their eye off the ball. Understanding context, understanding endogenous and exogenous forces that, that are keeping them on the current trajectory. And then secondly, you know, if the, if the change is truly transformational, as it probably needs to be, operationalizing strategy rather than from a programmatic and project point of view, trying to implement strategy is key. And, and Brandon, may I just add one more? I, I think oh, it's you important sure can. That, well, I think it's important that leaders, when they're thinking about confronting their default future, which is a term we, we, we use, they're actually also confronting their own personal default future. You know, if they chose to take their organization on a different trajectory, it's absolutely natural for them to think about what it means for them personally. You know, we talk about corporate strategy, don't we? But, you know, and corporate strategy is about taking the organization beyond its default future. But equally personal strategy, but we don't, you know, usually call it that, is when we talk, think about changing our own personal trajectory. And I think sometimes leaders don't quite understand that when they're thinking about changing the trajectory for their organization, they're also changing their personal trajectory. And they have to make choices around that as much as they have to make choices around that for their organization for which they are accountable. So whilst this default future thinking is very much based and focused on the, the corporate world and organizations, we think it's equally valid to the individual as well. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. I love that. I mean, it, we're, we're human beings. Human beings are the catalysts for the companies. And, and for us to think about what that looks like for us uh, does make a lot of sense. So I, I love that you brought that up. So beyond default, guys, get this book. There's a ton of great stuff in here. And you guys have heard me talk about total experience design, about designing an experience in your business and how you can have an experience by design or you can have one by default. You can also have a strategic future and a, and a future of your company that is that it's going to happen. There's a, there's a future for your company that's going to happen. You have to get real and decide what that is. And then if you don't like what you see, or if you're looking for ways to stay relevant or competitive in your market, how do we make those adjustments? This book has a lot of great information about how to uh, overcome some of the internal external forces that come along with that, some tools and ways of thinking and seeing how that trajectory would change. What is a realistic trajectory for my company and how do I assess that? How do I make the organizational improvements uh, in order to make these things happen? How do I lead this? All this stuff is in the book. So I know a lot of uh, my listeners are, are voracious readers, so make sure you check that out. So guys, uh, where do you want them to get the book? How do they learn more about you guys? Well, the easiest thing is to go to the website, which is www.beyond-default.com. And on that, there are a number of videos that Peter and I produced explaining and describing some of the key ideas in the book. There's also a forward by Don Tapscott and also a video forward by Don Tapscott. And also, also there's uh, access to other publications 
that we've written articles and blogs and podcasts that people can access as well. So beyond hyphendefault.com. Love it. Love it. Well, guys, thank you for taking some time uh, in the UK to be with us here. Uh, my podcast is based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, so uh, here in the States. So thank you guys for taking some time to be here and to uh, be part of the show and enrich our listeners with uh, your knowledge and expertise that you guys have uh, been doing this for you know 30 plus years and 25 years together. So thank you guys for being on the show. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Guys, make sure you go to newworkrevolution.com. I'm going to have the show notes, uh, links to, to learn more about uh, you know where you can get more information about David and Peter and the book. So make sure you go there and check it out. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you share it, social media with your friends. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. And thanks again to David and Peter for being on the show. Till next week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Work Revolution podcast on NewWorkRevolution.com. Until next time, take your business leadership to the next level and join the revolution.